Hey, I'm Johanna Wagstaff. And hi there, I'm Rohit Joseph. And we're asking for 10 minutes of your day to go through the 10 things that the UN recommends we can all do when it comes to climate change. Please don't leave. No. And also the things (laughs) aren't new. We are just wired to not do them. We promise you to help you figure out your brains and you and your people can make better choices to combat climate change. 10 Minutes to Save the Planet is available now on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hello, I'm Peter Armstrong. And I'm Chris Howden. This is As It Happens, the podcast edition. Tonight, family replanning. An Alabama court rules frozen embryos are children, just as our guests were starting IVF treatment, jeopardizing their plans to have a child. Much more than just a drop in the ocean. When California researchers started digging into what was lurking in a pile of corroding barrels on the seafloor off the coast of L.A., things turned toxic fast. Impatience on their patient's behalf. A Nova Scotia volunteer firefighter says injured people are waiting far too long for paramedics to get to the scene, sometimes with devastating consequences. Team player. When BC's Archdeep Baines took to the ice in his NHL debut last night, he became one of only four Punjabi players to play in the league. His dad tells us about the warm feelings in that chilly arena. Talk about heartburn. An astronomer tells us how he and his team spotted the universe's most luminous object, a black hole so big that it eats a sun a day. And tipping the scales. A Kansas man wins a fishing contest by cheating, and he would have gotten away with it too if detectives hadn't discovered the ball bearings he hid inside his crappy. That's the the name of the fish. As it happens, the Wednesday edition, radio that refuses to play the waiting game. People across Alabama and across the entire U.S. are coming to grips with a landmark state court decision declaring that frozen embryos are legally children. The Alabama Supreme Court ruled that frozen embryos should be afforded the same protection as babies and that anyone who destroys them can be held liable for wrongful death. That may have far-reaching consequences for those involved in in vitro fertilization, or IVF, in Alabama, doctors and patients. Gabby Goydell and her husband Spencer are undergoing IVF to try to conceive their first child. We reached her in Auburn, Alabama. Gabby, what was your immediate reaction when you learned about this ruling by the Alabama Supreme Court? Honestly, I was very shocked um, and angry, I think, was my initial reaction. It just really shocked me that somebody could want to stop an IVF and people creating families. And and you're in the midst, of course, of your own IVF treatment. What were you doing that day in terms of, of IVF? Um, so on Friday, when the, when the Alabama Supreme Court made their decision, um, it was actually my first day of stimulation medication, um, which is about a 10-day process to get the egg retrieval underway. And so when I found out about it the next day, I was only in day two, of a very short time period and also probably one of the most stressful time periods of IVF. 
You know, we, we've been reading about this and about its implications, and I think everybody's still trying to understand exactly what this all means. But you have doctors in the state that are concerned that, at the very least, they're going to have to adjust the way they operate, which will make it more expensive, more difficult to treat patients. Some are worried that they're going to just have to straight up close their clinics. What sense have you been able to get so far about how this is going to affect your efforts to conceive a baby? So my first thought was that um, I'm worried about my clinic shutting down um, and I'm worried about having to stop this procedure in the middle. I'm just very worried that the access is going to, to get worse. I fear that this is going to make the process more expensive. In my personal case, uh, I am about halfway through of my medication, which was very expensive. And if we had to stop now and wait another cycle, it could easily be way more expensive for me. But for the moment, you're pushing ahead with this, yeah? Yes. Um, right before um, I got on um, with you guys, uh, I received a news report that UAB is stopping all IVF procedures um, and pausing them. Um, my clinic's in Birmingham, where UAB is, and I was frantically Googling if there is a parent hospital for them. Um, and so... Right now, I'm just really worried with them shutting their doors that other clinics are going to follow suit. Right. I mean, there's just so many unknowns in all of this. Let's go go back a little bit. The the ruling comes as a result of an incident at a fertility clinic where a a patient sort of allegedly went into the storage area, grabbed some frozen embryos, dropped them, destroying them, and the parents sued. Do you understand why they did that and what, what the sort of the motivation behind how we got here was? Absolutely. I I would be mortified if my embryos had been destroyed. We go through this procedure uh, in hopes of having a baby, and if they're destroyed, you lose all your your hope and your possibility. Um, I I can't even imagine that pain, but I don't view embryos as human children, just not yet. I I view them as possibilities, so I understand the pain and the suffering that they've gone through. Well, not personally understand it, but um, I see the motivation behind what they did. I I just don't agree with their choice. So uh, if you had an opportunity to sit with those judges and and just try to shed light on what their decision has meant for you, what would you say to them? I would say that their decision is hurting access to IVF care and is making it a lot harder for us um, and adding a lot of undue stress. And I would ask them to just reconsider in other ways how they could bring justice for those families without making this decision um, that's going to hurt IVF care. There are people out there who will say, well, Gabby, look, we've made a decision about how we're going to run things here in Alabama. You can go to Florida or Georgia or some other state nearby or go up to New York if that's what it took and and get whatever treatment you feel you need. How would you respond to that? I I can't just go anywhere else. Um, I actually initially tried to look into IVF care in Georgia, but in the process, you have to do multiple monitoring appointments. So through my simulation, I have to go almost every other day. If you were telling me that I would have to go to New York or or somewhere else, I, I can't travel like that. I, I don't have the means or the money 
or the time off of work. I'm already maxing out my sick days at work right. just to do this process. So that's adding a lot more expense and time that not everybody has the luxury of affording. You know, the, that struggle with fertility is such a common struggle that so many people around the world have and so often have in the privacy of their own home and they, they don't want to talk about it with people. If I've got this right, you hadn't even told people you were doing IVF, but now you've written a column about it. You're talking on the radio about it. You've gone very public. How did you make that decision to go as public as you have and share your story with the world? Yeah, so I did not want anybody really to know, even my close friends and family. I kept it very private. Um, we had only told the necessary people that we had to, and that was because it is just very personal to me and my husband. But after I saw this ruling, I think it was really important to know that uh, this was affecting real people. And we who live in Alabama are really hurt emotionally by this decision. And I just felt like I couldn't stay quiet after that. This is beyond the ruling and beyond me. It goes for everybody who comes and has to do IVF after me. Well, look, it's a difficult conversation, but we're really glad you're able to share your story with us and, and your experience. It, it's, it's been really helpful. So thank you for this. Thank you, guys. Have a good day. You too. Bye-bye. That's Gabby Goydell in Auburn, Alabama. A group of volunteer firefighters in Nova Scotia are on call 24 hours a day, seven days a week. If they're close to a scene and they get paged, they go to help, and they're often first on the scene. But lately they say they've been first by a truly disturbing margin. Last week, Dwayne Bartow waited at the scene of a highway car crash for more than an hour. Mr. Bartow has been volunteering with the Annapolis Royal Fire Department for 35 years. We reached him in Annapolis Royal, Nova Scotia. Dwayne, what was going through your mind as you were waiting for the ambulance? Well, there was multiple things going through my mind, um, and it was, uh, you know, it was all a feeling of helplessness. What can we do? What the heck is going on? Why are we waiting so long? And, uh, uh, you know, how are, how are we going to deal with this if things go south uh, and we didn't or weren't able to do more? I know you can't go into details here, but there there were three kids in that car. How, do you know how they're doing now? Yeah, so it's been my understanding that they're all uh, going to be okay. Um, you know, there was there was serious injuries, and as uh, our biggest concern in in uh, Kyrex is uh, is you know you know head injuries and and uh, spine injuries, and they're always very very serious. And without going into details, we we were facing. You know, all of the things that we are worst case, well, not worst case scenarios, but worst case survivable scenarios. And, uh, yeah, to deal with it with kids and to deal with them all at once, it was a challenge for sure. Well, I, I mean, on the one hand, we should thank our lucky stars that you were there and able to respond and have the training to do 
what you did, but this isn't what's normally expected of a volunteer firefighter. What is it like for you and the other firefighters to have to, to take on this kind of work? Well, this work has sort of been in progression over the last number of years. When I first joined a long time ago, we really didn't do medical calls. Uh, we did go to motor vehicle accidents, but the uh, ambulance service was usually right there with us right from the beginning. Um, fortunately for me, uh, we have a number of uh, uh, medical first responders on our department and, you know, a few ex-paramedics that are there that can lend their uh, knowledge and expertise from time to time. This this uh, scenario that played out was uh, the most patients we've had to deal with at once. It feels like over the last few years we've been leading up to, you know, doing this sort of thing because our wait times um, – for help from our, our great friends in the emergency health services to show up, you know, the, the wait times have been getting longer and longer. And uh, it's at a, you know, now it's at a breaking point um, where even us that we're starting to get used to those wait times, it's like, it's just too much now, right. too long. So the, the Annapolis Community Health Center, they haven't had an emergency room since 2022. What, what difference has that made on, on the wait times? Oh, that's had a, you know, that's had a really drastic effect on uh, wait times. You know, we, we used to have an ambulance, or we still have an ambulance service uh, sitting right beside our hall. But uh, when they transport people now, they uh, they used to go to the next community a half hour away. In either direction, there's a, an emergency room half hour away. But now those uh, centers are, uh, one of them's closed some of the time, and the other one's not accepting ambulance traffic at all. Oh, wow. Uh, so, you know, they used to be able to go and offload a patient and, and uh, you know, maybe even come back to the same scene. Um, that's just out of the question now because, you know, when you're waiting an hour to two hours for one to even show up and then they've got to go another hour to, to offload their patient. It's, you know, we rarely even see our local ambulances and paramedics. It's usually from another community, uh, you know, an hour away or really? more. Yeah, because they're just, they're just too busy. They're overworked. I understand a local MLA was at the fire station last night. What did he tell you about the situations with, you know, what's happening with the ERs in the area and, and more to the point, what might be done about it? Well, we, we did. We had a little meeting with uh, Carmen Kerr, our local MLA, and uh, he's just as concerned as we are. You know, he grew up in this community, too. And, uh, you know, he's he, what he's telling us is he wants to find a help, find a solution uh, to fix this too. And, and, uh, he's, like I say, he's just as concerned as we are. And there's not really much to say about it other than, uh, the situation is getting worse and it's getting worse fast. And he, he actually made it clear. He didn't want to politicize this. He's just looking to help find a solution. And, uh, and, uh, you know, we're just keeping our fingers crossed that, uh, our powers to be can, uh, start making a difference. And I mean, it's a complicated problem. It's not just your job, it's your community. You know, after seeing what these wait times have, have come to, are, do you worry about needing to call an ambulance for yourself or someone in your family? Oh, oh my goodness, yes. Um, when you see it firsthand and, you know, I have, uh, I have elderly parents, I have friends with health, health issues and, uh, you know, you start to think about it and, you know, what if, what if I need it and, and I, it actually keeps me awake at night. I got to be honest; it, it really does. And uh, it never used to because, it, well, the problem, the problem didn't exist until lately. 
I used to live not too, too far from where you are now. And I know that the volunteer fire departments are the lifeblood of a lot of those communities. You've been doing that for 35 years this year. That's on top of your actual job of owning and operating a farm. Why do you keep volunteering? Well, it's become a way of life for me, honestly. Um, And the thought as I get older, the thought is, you know, maybe I can retire um, but we're not getting the new recruits in the numbers that we used to. And uh, even though I feel we're in very capable hands of the of the next generation of firefighters uh, coming up, um, we just need the numbers. And uh, I do it for uh, for the passion that I had right since I was a little kid looking up to the what are now veterans of the fire department and uh, and the respect I had for them and, and you know, like every little boy at one point in time wants to be a firefighter. Right. And uh, I guess I never quite grew out of that and uh, don't want to admit I'm getting that age, but I, I, uh, I'm I, still going to do it as long as I possibly can. Well, thank you for the work you do. And, and thank you for, for coming on the program and talking about this today. Well, I appreciate the opportunity to do so. Thank you. Dwayne Barteau is a volunteer firefighter with the Annapolis Royal Fire Department. We reached him in Annapolis Royal, Nova Scotia. was the 13 minutes and 21 seconds Arshdeep Baines had been training for his whole life. Last night, Mr. Baines took to the ice in his NHL debut with the Vancouver Canucks. The 23-year-old from Surrey, B.C., becomes one of only four Punjabi players to play in the NHL, and B.C.'s South Asian community was fired up to see his first appearance last night. One member of that community in particular, his dad, who was in the stands in Denver to see his son play. We reached Coldeep Baines in Seattle, Washington. Kaldeep, what were you feeling when Arshdeep took to the ice last night for the, the first time in his, his NHL game? You know, it was a, just a special feeling for us and the family. Oh, we were waiting for this uh, moment for all this, uh, you know, last so many, you know, so many years that he's, he's accomplishing his dream right now. You know, he's just stepping into the ice. It's just the best feeling ever. <laughs> He, uh, he he went undrafted at both the WHL level and the NHL level. He's had to really work hard to prove he's worth it at this level. How big of an achievement is this for him to, to play in last night's game and then within that game to not look out of place at all? Yeah, that was huge. Like, you know, it was very huge, big for him. Like, you know, right from the beginning, like, you know, he, he everything he, he did, he has to earn it. Like, you know, like he was... He's dedicated, like, you know, hard worker right from the beginning. Like, you know, the, the kids would be having a fun out there, like, you know, in their young life. Like, but he was always working hard for for this, uh, his uh, his dream. And early mornings, he's, you know, up and go to his trainings and to his practices, whatever is there. Like, you know, hockey to him, like, you know, the working hard to him was the first. Then everything else, you know, scheduled around it. Like, you know, same with our family, you know, everything he... We knew the schedule was there. Everything else was, uh, you know, beside it. So that's, that's, you know, that was that's how huge it was for him. You know, the 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 willingness to put in the work, of course, is what gets him there. But 
You you must have seen something early on when he was just a kid playing that that you recognized that he had an aptitude for the game and and an ability to do it. When did you realize that that he had something special? His accordance, like you know, his 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 wives, like you know, seems very positive all the time. Like you know, when he was stepping on the ice, steps like he was taking, like you know, like he was very coordinated. Like you know, how did you say that? Like you know. He was gifted for for some of the you know stuff he was doing like, that you don't teach like you know thinking about the game or thinking about what he's doing. It was it was it was uh, kind of special. You see sometimes you know when he was skating, the people would say like you know where did you take him for skating? That the way he was skating when he was early age. So <laughs> right, that all kind of put it all together. So that that you know that gave us uh, you know special look at him like you know here he wants to do something we, we should follow with him like you know that's that's how we you know from the from the young age you know hockey parents it's a notorious a famous amount of sacrifice with the early mornings the travel the amount of work that goes into getting your kid in a position to to work that hard is a lot what what made you willing to do that to to put in the hours to help him get there well i i had a little bit of a, you know my myself was uh you know into sports, a little bit into sports. Do I, you know, I like the team, like the Canucks, you know, home team here, Canucks, and sports was in me too a little bit. So I, I put a little bit of extra effort, like you know, to, you know, let's say, you know, I, I see myself in him, or like you know, as I feel, you know, father or sure. parents would do that, but you know, but still, we see a little bit of a special in him here. I go, I'll, I'll you know, I'll go with it, like you know, give him what he's looking for in the in, in the future, and I, you know. Thank God, you know, he's there and, you know, we're, we're, we're beside him to achieve his, uh, you know, goal and going into the, you know, that, that, that part into the sports. You know, our community is right behind him, too. Like, you know, there's so all the wishes and goodwills, you know, they're, you know, they're, they're, they're giving us on the phone and, you know, all this, it's, it's just so real, like, you know, what is going on in, in our, 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 our community here. I bet. I, like it, it must be even hard to quantify what this means for the South Asian community in BC. It, it is, yeah, yeah. It's a very special moment for everybody. Can you see the impact that his just this week, but his whole career to this point means for other South Asian kids who might kind of dream of making the NHL? It's 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 huge. Like you know that 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 last from what I what I've seen and what I've heard from last that you know few. I see a couple of years or like last, you know, especially when he started in uh, AHL, like, you know, what I've heard from everybody, how many younger kids are follow, starting to follow him and, and, and then, you know, and what they, they all hoping him to make it to the big end. You know, it's, it's, it's just very, very special. I bet. Let, let's just quickly break down the game last night. He had two shots, three hits, a block shot. He played 13 minutes, which is pretty good. What, what did you think of his performance? I think he looked pretty calm and, he, he he went through the business right after the, the first lap. But like you know, he, he went to you know do what he always does. Yeah, makes a good plays, makes the best plays, and you know, every time you know he has a puck, he wants to do something with it. And I mean, he's having a banner season. It's, he's earned every drop of this. What what was what did you say to him after the game? Uh, just well done, and he just gave me a big hug, and you know, <laughs> he, yeah, he, he's when he when he saw him on the ice level, you know, he gave me a hug, and he says, "Here we are, Dad." Like you know, that was his first word, and I just gave him, you know, big hug, and that was, you know, that was a, you know, that was our first first sight after the first sight after the ice. Well, get used to it. He sure looked like he belonged. I, I think we're going to see more of this. Oh, thank you very much, Peter, and uh, it was great.
right. Take good care. Thanks for this. Yeah, yeah goodbye. Call Deep Baines is the father of NHL hockey player Arshdeep Baines. We reached him in Seattle. From the get-go, it smelled a bit off, literally and figuratively, which meant it was a case for the fish detectives. Fish detectives, you're busted. Last March, Bobby Parkhurst caught himself a huge slab white crappie, beautiful fish, Beautiful name. And this one was especially beautiful. It weighed in at 4.07 pounds, a record in the state of Kansas. In April, the Kansas Department of Wildlife and Parks, or KDWP, announced the new record. Its assistant director of fisheries said, We get the chance to see a lot of big fish, but this one is certainly for the books. It certainly was one for the books. The books about dubious fish achievements, like... I can't name any right now. Anyway, a bait shop owner contacted the KDWP and told the fish detectives that Mr. Parkhurst had weighed his crappie there in early March. At the time, it weighed in at 3.73 pounds. Big crappie, but not the biggest crappie. So that bait shop owner was awfully surprised to see it declared the biggest crappie a month later for weighing over 4 pounds. The fish detectives seized the crappie from Bobby Parkhurst's freezer, scanned it with a metal detector, got a hit, got in their fish crime chopper and flew over to the Topeka Zoo, or they drove there, got the crappie x-rayed, and that's when they saw them. The two steel ball bearings cunningly stowed inside the crappie. Look, are the fish police unorthodox? Sure. Loose cannons? Undoubtedly. Is it weird that they didn't just do the metal detector thing immediately? Like, isn't that the very first thing you would do if you were in charge of fish records? Yes, it is. But you can't deny their results. That fake record is now nullified. And they may have temporarily lost their bearings, but they found his. Hello, I'm Jess Milton. For 15 years, I produced The Vinyl Cafe with the late, great Stuart McLean. Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of The Vinyl Cafe with our new podcast, Backstage at The Vinyl Cafe. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart, and for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. It's like those horror stories you hear about when someone renovates a house. When they open the walls, they find leaky pipes. Beneath the leaky pipes, they find mold and then a rat's nest. It's just a chain of terrible discoveries. But this is something much bigger and much worse. In 2020, scientists discovered a graveyard of barrels on the ocean floor off the California coast, not far from Los Angeles. That led to the detection of a huge concentration of the banned pesticide DDT. 
Then researchers found massive piles of weaponry the Navy had dumped into the sea before heading into port. And today, new research was published in the journal Environmental Science and Technology, suggesting that the barrels, you remember the barrels, well, the barrels were filled with radioactive waste. Dave Valentine is a scientist with the University of California, Santa Barbara. He led the team that first discovered the site, and he's the lead author of the new research. We reached him today in New Orleans. Professor Valentine, your new research was published this morning. What leads you to believe there was radioactive waste in these barrels? Well, what we, uh, what we found is really a circumstantial historical case based on mining of documents. And, you know, we have six or seven different lines of evidence, but basically it, it sums up to this, this corporation that was doing disposal. In 1959, they applied for and received a, a permit to do radioactive waste disposal um, 150 miles offshore. But years later, um, it was uh, revealed from the Atomic Energy Commission that they had never activated that permit, and therefore they had assumed that this company had never actually performed any disposal. But what we find um, is a a paper trail that this company had been um, advertising itself as a, a radioactive waste disposal company. And so um, really, the picture that comes together is that we have a a company that existed around offshore dumping, um, mainly of chemical wastes, um, but would also take uh, other wastes and presumably dump them offshore, radioactive in this case. Now, we've seen reports about this really high concentration of DDT in this area for years now. So if I'm putting this together correctly, were they dumping the DDT on top of radioactive waste? Uh, or vice versa. So the, um, the disposal of DDT in the offshore environment uh, between the mainland and Catalina Island took place roughly between 1948 and 1961. Um, so probably the, the radioactive waste would have been dumped on top of the, um, the DDT waste, which itself was bulk dumped just in straight into the ocean. Bulk dumped. So, like, the, that wasn't even in barrels. They're just flooding DDT, dangerous chemical, known toxin, straight into the ocean. Yeah. So, what was happening is that the, the nations, the U.S. Um, largest supplier and manufacturer of DDT, was located in the LA area. And they would have a, a synthesis that, um, that they would run. And it left um, extremely concentrated sulfuric acid as a, a waste product that was laden with DDT, maybe half a percent up to perhaps 2% DDT, and they needed to get rid of that waste. Um, This is 85% pure sulfuric acid laden with DDT. So what they would do is have this the same company come and and pick up the waste in tanker trucks, bring it down to the port, pump it uh, into massive tanks on a barge, and then whenever those tanks were, were full of acid waste, um, the barge would be towed offshore, and then they would pump it out of the barge directly into the ocean. Now, the, this company that you've been able to put this paper trail together on, uh, you say it advertised as Radioactive Waste Disposal Company. What do we know about what this company was doing, where this waste was coming from? Yeah, so we, we know that this company, um, they were the ones who would uh, dispose of, of really any acid waste from um, the, the chemical manufacturing or refining uh, industries. So they disposed of the DDT waste that was um, 
that was created by, by Montrose Chemical. Um, and what we find is, is a limited paper trail, but we certainly find that, um, that they were accepting uh, radioactive waste from uh, a local hospital over a quarterly, over a, a period of about five years. We have um, uh, paper trail evidence for that. Um, and also from the decommissioning of a contaminated um, radioisotope use facility located up in Burbank, California. And, um, and there we have a deposition um, where the, the uh, individual being deposed um, says, yes, we used this company, oh, and they took it offshore and dumped it, um, thinking it was legal at the time for that to happen. Wow. Um, so, so those are at least two of the things we know. Um, and this is just the paper trail that still exists today. You know, we're talking about you know, the 1950s and 60s. Right. And so there's, there could very well be other things we don't know about. Well, and so you can sort of add in the there was a discovery of, of military waste and munitions in the ocean near Los Angeles. And I, I don't want to sound glib here, but what should we be most worried about from an environmental standpoint, the radioactive waste, the DDT or those munitions? Yeah, I, I think there's a pretty clear answer to that question. And that is that the DDT waste uh, is the one that is most concerning. Um, and, and the reason for that is because uh, it doesn't break down and it bioaccumulates. It, it magnifies through the food chain and is um, is a known uh, known contaminant today in animals that live in the the California coastal region. Um, and so we're we're seeing effects in in at least three different kinds of animals um, that we know of: the the bottlenose dolphins are accumulating dangerous levels of DDT. The the California condors. Only the coastal population um, are, uh, are accumulating um, too much DDT. And then, uh, you know, probably the, the worst case of all is the California sea lions, um, where right now 25% of all sea lion deaths in California are from the same cancer. And that cancer has been linked to a combination of chemical loading, including DDT, and a herpes virus. And, um, and that's a, a major epidemic in the, in the sea lion population today. I mean, this is just a, a disaster of multiple proportions. How do we even start to clean this up? Yeah, I, you know, I think that um, we can't even can't even have a, a realistic discussion about that until we know the the actual scope of the problem. You know, what what we've revealed today uh, in our work is a little bit more of the the when it happened, you know, where it happened, and how it happened. Um, and, and a little bit of the, what's happened to those um, chemicals since then. But um, there's still a lot we don't know. And until we have a, a, a real scope of, of what's going on down there, um, we can't really have any legitimate discussion about what can or can't be done. Well, thank you for your research, and thanks for making time to speak with us today. All right. Thank you, Peter. Dave Valentine is a professor of earth science and biology at the University of California, Santa Barbara. We reached him in New Orleans. More than 50 years after he died, a court in Chile has ordered the investigation into Pablo Neruda's death be reopened. Officially, prostate cancer killed the Nobel Prize-winning poet in 1973. 
But according to those closest to him, it was politics. Mr. Neruda was a close advisor to President Salvador Allende. He died just days after Augusto Pinochet seized power in a military coup, and there have long been suspicions that he was poisoned. In a statement, the court said previous inquiries into his death had not been exhaustive and that more can be done to, quote, clarify the facts, unquote. In 2017, As It Happened spoke with Debbie Poinar, a researcher at McMaster University's Ancient DNA Lab. The lab's research has been instrumental in the decision to reopen the case. Several years ago, it found evidence to show that Mr. Neruda's prostate cancer was not the cause of his death, and it found something else, too. From our archives, Debbie Poinar explains those findings to guest host Helen Mann. Our dictatedness was to look at the presence or absence of any bacteria that may have been in his remains, and from that determine if that bacteria could have been a bacteria that was used as a biological agent. And what did you find? You, you found something in his molar, is that right? Uh, yes, yes. We were um, given uh, bone samples and two samples, a canine and a molar. And in the molar sample, we did find a bacteria of strong interest. We can't really determine, or actually I can't really say what that is right now because this is an ongoing investigation. And we have to be very careful about making sure that this is a bacteria that came from Mr. Neruda himself and not from the uh, contamination from the environment or the burial setting. Would there be, at the time of his death, other bacteria that would be known or used in some kind of nefarious way? Yes, yes, absolutely. I mean, bacterial, you know, research on bacteria and using them as biological agents has been going on since the time of, you know, the Chinese wars or plague victims even, and certainly during um, the 40s, uh, 1940s, even World War II, and of course during the time period of the Cold War. There was a lot of development of using various bacteriological agents to use as poisoning. What is next in your own investigation? Um, right now, basically what we have to do is take all of the information that we've retrieved, all of the different stretches of DNA throughout this bacteria, and piece it back together to reconstruct its entire genome through computer analysis. Basically like taking, say, a puzzle that has four million pieces and trying to put it together so that you can obtain a more clear picture of exactly what this bacteria is and if it's a strain that came from 1973. What does it mean to you to have a role in this investigation? Oh, it, it's actually been really incredible. It, it's, it's meant a lot to me. This is a recent uh, historical case. I mean, we're used to working on remains that um, are from so long ago, of course, it's almost face, they are faceless to us. And I, I read Pablo Neruda's poetry and I'm very aware of what happened in Chile. And it's, it's been quite an experience to be part of this expert panel of medical and scientific advisors during this time period. Debbie Poinar is a DNA researcher at McMaster University. That was part of her 2017 conversation with guest host Helen Mann. They have since determined that Mr. Neruda had a strain of the botulism causing Clostridium botulinum in his system.
You know when you're driving and the sun comes out and you realize you've forgotten your sunglasses, so you put down the visor and you try to scrunch your eyebrows down to create shadows, but it's all useless. Tears stream down your face as you curse the bright sun. Well, try to imagine that, but 500 trillion times more luminous. Not so much eyebrow scrunching as retina searing. A group of scientists say they have discovered a quasar which is, quote, not only the brightest of its kind, but also the most luminous object ever observed, unquote. Chris Onken is a co-author of the paper on the discovery published this week in the journal Nature Astronomy. We reached him in Canberra, Australia. Chris, just so we're all kind of on the same page here, what is a quasar? So a quasar is the glowing disk of very hot material that's falling into a black hole. And it, it, there must be one for there to be a black hole, is that correct? Well, we know that there are black holes in lots of galaxies where there isn't stuff falling in. So we can only measure the black hole being there by how fast it's pulling the stars nearby around. But when there's a lot of gas very close to the black hole and actually spiraling in through this sort of electric whirlpool, um, that's when we see it shining like a quasar. So you need the black hole to have a quasar, but not all black holes turn into quasars. Okay. So we're calling this the most luminous object ever observed. And I, I've, I've read some of the paper. And the stats and figures are frankly, the, like they are too big for my tiny brain to even wrap its head around. Uh, what can you tell me about some of the stats and figures involved in this? Because they are just kind of mind-blowing, aren't they? They really are. So the mass of this black hole is about 17 billion times bigger than the sun. So I think that's sort of the the equivalent of comparing the weight of an ant to the weight of a small blue whale. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. And it's it's eating, it says, a sun a day. What does that even mean? So it has this giant event horizon, that, that point of no return where not even light can escape. And that is enormous. Uh, it's sort of 10 times the size of Pluto's orbit. So, you know, much bigger than any of the, the planets' uh, orbits in our, in our solar system. And it has this huge area in which it can have stuff falling into it. And so there's a, like a pancake of material that's swirling into the black hole. And that is funneling so much gas and matter into the black hole that, yeah, it's, it's eating sort of a, a sun a day or about 100 Earths a second. Oh, my goodness. Uh, should we be worried about it eventually eating us? No. So this is in a, a galaxy whose light has been traveling to us for 12 billion years. So it's coming from an era when the universe was sort of in its infancy, it was sort of 10% of its current age. And so the light's been traveling for 12 billion years, and we're just seeing it now. So this is a, a very long ways away. And if I, if I understood the paper right, it's so far away that the light, as incredibly big as it might be in relation to the universe, is so small that it literally took AI to sort of sort it out from what is this? Is it a quasar or is it maybe a brighter star closer to Earth? Is that about right? That's right. So although it's the most luminous object we know of in the entire universe— it's actually 10,000 times fainter than you can see with the naked eye. Wow. So at that brightness, there's a whole lot of stars in the galaxy that are as bright or brighter. And it's really hard to sift out the 
distant objects from that foreground screen of, of contaminants for what we're concerned with. And so, yeah, there are some groups who are using machine learning and, and AI tools. Uh, our group has taken a slightly different approach, but it's let us find this uh, very, very rapidly growing black hole. You touched on this a second ago, but I just want to dive in because I, I find this part of it fascinating that the light was, was, quote, hiding in plain sight. So how did you guys find it? So we've been on the hunt for a few years now trying to find these overlooked, rapidly growing black holes. And this new one, we know of photographs going back to about 1980 or so. So it's been out there. It's been clearly visible, but it's just really hard to tell the difference between the stars in our galaxy and things that are more distant. But the European Space Agency launched a satellite called Gaia a few years ago, which has been measuring very small motions of those stars in our galaxy. So by being able to discard all of the stars that are moving, we can just focus on the things that are not moving in the, the background. And we're also aided by a NASA satellite that was launched uh, a few years ago which looks at the infrared colors. And so the colors in the infrared light, they look a bit different between quasars and stars. And so those two things combined has really helped us focus in and uh, have a very high success rate in finding these, these overlooked black holes. But this one is so much more distant than any of the others that we'd found so far. Yours is long work and quiet hours looking out into the vastness of space. Uh, that probably doesn't have these quick moments of celebration and realization. What was that moment like when you figured out what you had discovered? How did you react? Well, I think I was the first one on the team to actually realize how far away this object was. And, you know, usually you'd notify a few people about what we'd observed the night before. And this email went out to about twice as many people. And it had many more exclamation marks than uh, any of the other emails I had sent. I bet. Uh, and, and I'm looking here at the, the renderings of this discovery. And for all its enormity and how I have a hard time wrapping my head around it, it is kind of beautiful. Uh, yet I imagine up close, this is far from beautiful. This would be terrifying. It would be a pretty inhospitable place to be. Um, <laughs> yeah, this sort of yeah, electric whirlpool of material falling into the black hole at incredibly high temperatures, giving off ultraviolet and X-ray radiation. It's not anything you want to be too close to. Uh, your co-author, Christian Wolf likened it to the biggest gates of hell we found anywhere in the universe. Do you agree with that? Yeah, it's, uh, it's not a place you want to be going into. And if you do, you're not coming back. Well, it's a good thing it's 12 billion light years away. Thank you so much for this. Really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Chris Onken is a scientist at the Australian National University. We reached him in Canberra. In 1955, Edward Ambrose was switched at birth, sent home with the wrong family as a newborn. In 2022, Mr. Ambrose, who had been raised as a Ukrainian-Canadian, learned that his parents were actually Manitoba Métis. Since then, he has met his biological siblings and begun to explore his heritage, including learning the art of beadwork. Last week, the 68-year-old received official recognition from the Manitoba Métis Federation at a ceremony where he was presented with a Métis citizenship card. When I first went in, I had my daughter, Eileen, and my 
biological sister, Leona. So usually I don't usually break down that easily, uh, but this kind of a time uh, put tears into my eyes, but the, the tears and everything else that came with it, because I couldn't hold it, I had to, I had to, I had to cry, you know. This the affectionate, you know, about this, and and uh, I tried to say a word, and that's when I lost it. Uh, I grew up as Ukrainian, and and the uh, of, of getting the card, it was pulling me to who I am. So that that was very uh, very emotional for me to uh, try and. Uh, to understand, you know, to try and take it all in. Yeah. How do you, where are you now in terms of processing the, the I guess, the, the confusion, pain, grief, but also the sort of sense of something well, new? I don't think the, the confusing, confusion that you're saying to pain and, and for the grief of what <clears throat> went through, that'll always be there. You'll, you'll never walk away from that. But uh, for now that, uh, that I I know who I am and I know who my biological uh, sisters and brothers are like so uh, uh, it's a step forward it's it's a step forward to her positive and the past was the past is it's it's something that you didn't know and and then when you found out uh, it was it was it was devastating for you know to find out you know you're not an Ambrose. And but you know, finding out later that uh, yeah, you're you're not an Ambrose, and this is who you are. You know, you're you're a bouvet. It's a it's a positive a positive way that that I can follow now. I know I know where where I belong, and I know where I go from here. And yeah. Edward Ambrose speaking with Bryce Hoy on CBC Manitoba's Radio Noon. been listening to the As It Happens podcast. Our show can be heard Monday to Friday on CBC Radio 1 after Your World Tonight. You can also listen to our show anytime at cbc.ca slash AIH or on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Peter Armstrong. Thanks so much for listening. And I'm Chris Howden. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.